would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4 this morning? John chapter 4. Jesus pursues outsiders for salvation. On his way up to Galilee, he stopped in a place filled with people who were seen as outcasts by the religious elites. But Jesus goes to outcasts, doesn't he? He even goes to the outsiders of the outcasts, like the Samaritan woman. He he bears the reproach outside the camp with the outsider. And in going to outsiders, Jesus proves that he is not just the Savior of the Jews, but that he is the Savior of the whole world. Remember, he said to Nicodemus that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. And that whoever includes a self-righteous, works-seeking, religious elite like Nicodemus who is running to the truth. But that whoever also includes a non-Jewish, irreligious, immoral outcast like the Samaritan woman. So Jesus saves whoever will believe. No matter how righteous you think you are in your own eyes or no matter how unworthy you think you are, in your own eyes. Jesus saves whoever will believe. There are no exceptions. No restrictions. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's why Jesus came to the earth. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Lost. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a friend to those who don't think they need Him. And Jesus is a friend to those who don't think that He can save them. Jesus pursues sinners. And the clearest expression of His pursuit of sinners is in His substitutionary death on the cross that He willingly laid down His life. It's one thing for Jesus to lay down His life for His friends we would see that as a high expression of love for someone to give their life as a sacrifice for their friends. But Jesus did something much more powerful than that. He laid down His life for His enemies. And so that makes Jesus the Savior of the world. He is the Savior. And He is the Savior of not just the Jews, but both Jew and Gentile. And even a Samaritan. He has paid the price and nothing more needs to be done. Nothing more needs to be added to Jesus' work. All we have to do is simply respond to Jesus' payment with acceptance. You receive Jesus. You welcome Jesus by turning from your sins and trusting in Him alone for your salvation from the wrath of God. And this morning, the story of the Samaritan woman continues. So let me begin reading in verse 27, John chapter 4. This is the Word of God. At this point, His disciples came, and they were amazed that He had been speaking with the woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to Him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal and that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the words of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So here in John 4, again we see that that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Last time we saw that Jesus pursues outsiders. And that proves that that when He saves someone like Nicodemus, who is self-righteous and who is running to the truth, and He saves someone who is, is guilty and knows it and is running away from the truth, that means He can save anyone in between. And that's where we fall. We fall somewhere in between. I don't know your background specifically, but, but, but maybe you were on this side where you didn't see that you were worthy of God's salvation. Or maybe you saw yourself on this side where you thought you didn't need salvation because you could do it on your own works. Wherever you were on that spectrum, Jesus is the Savior of you. Jesus offers salvation to all who will believe. And that includes the self-righteous to the most detestable among us. That includes the Jews and the, the Gentiles. doesn't matter your ethnic background. Jesus offers salvation to you as well. In this passage, we learn three things about God's harvest. Jesus is teaching His disciples about something and actually showing it. It appears in this harvest of, of, um, of souls that come uh, in this Samaritan village, this Samaritan town, the first thing that we see is that God's harvest includes outsiders, not just Jews only. Verses 27 through 30, God's harvest includes outsiders. The disciples come back from being in the city, and they can't understand that Jesus would do this, that he would go to outsiders. They can't comprehend that Jesus would even speak to this woman. Look at how John describes their reaction when they see him talking to the Samaritan woman. At this point, verse 27 reads, His disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. They were amazed. This word amazed is a word that's used in chapter 3, verse 7. It describes Nicodemus' reaction to the reality that he had to be born again. He thought he, he was fine. And he was amazed that he would have to be born again. How could he be born a second time, he thought. It's the same word, amazed, used in chapter 7, verse 15, where Jesus was teaching in the temple. And the religious leaders were astonished, shocked. shocked. They were amazed that He could teach without any formal education. How is this possible? This word, amazed, is the same word that's used in Acts 2, 7 to describe the crowd's reaction to the believers speaking in tongues there. You get the idea. The word, amazed, has this idea of being confounded or shocked at some kind of realization that's presented before them. And here, the disciples have this alarming realization 
that Jesus is, is actually talking with not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. But they didn't want to say anything to him. It says, no one said, what do you seek or, what, or why do you speak with her? They were too afraid to ask. This is kind of funny, ironic, because the disciples are often brash and mindless with some of their questions. Remember, Jesus, give us whatever we ask of you. James and John said, can we sit on either side of you in the kingdom? They often don't think and just ask. But there are other times when they are reluctant to ask. Like in Mark 9.32 when Jesus had told them the second time that the Son of Man would be handed over to angry men and would be killed and then rise from the dead three days later, no one was willing to ask him what that meant. It says they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask And we shouldn't be surprised by that. What happened the first time that Jesus told them that he was going to die? Do you remember? In Mark's Gospel, the first time that Jesus told them that he was going to die, Peter rebuked him. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So, perhaps that's in the front of their minds. The second time he predicts his death. Last time someone questioned Jesus and tried to show him that this doesn't make sense, He rebuked them in turn. So here in in verse 27, the disciples are in a similar predicament. They couldn't understand why in the world Jesus would even give the time of day to someone who was an outcast socially, religiously, and morally. How could He possibly talk to her? In verses 28 through 30, the woman believes in Jesus and passes the news of Jesus on to the rest of the city. Notice verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? This is an amazing grace of God expressed in this woman. Because you remember the time of day that she came to draw water? It was not in the morning or the evening when it was cool and when all the other ladies would come. She came when she was all alone. Because she was an outcast. She came in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. She's afraid to, to even be around these people because of the reproach that she brought upon herself because of her sin. And now she's going to them and telling them about Christ. And isn't that the nature of genuine saving faith? That when we embrace Jesus for who He is, when we understand this gospel of grace that we didn't deserve it, we are not ashamed of Jesus. We're happy to speak on behalf of Him. So, number one, God's harvest includes outsiders. Number two, God's harvest is at the center of God's program. Verses 31 to 38. God's harvest is at the center of God's program. And what Jesus wants them to see is that His primary mission is to do God's work. Jesus' primary mission is to do God's work, which includes bringing in the harvest. Verses 31 to 34. Jesus here uses a physical illustration to describe a spiritual reality, just like he did with the Samaritan woman in the water. Do you really want living water so you'll never thirst again? I can give that to you. And here he says, he, he uses the illustration of food, of physical food, but he's talking about spiritual f- food. And what he's saying to the disciples is that the fuel for our physical body might be food. But the 
fuel for our whole life is the work of God. The work and the Word of God. That is to, 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 the way that we express the energy that we receive from the Word of God is by doing God's work. This is what Moses said in Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here Jesus is saying something very similar. He says, man effectively does not live by bread alone, but by doing the will of my Father. And so what he's saying is something similar to what, what Moses was saying. Moses was saying is, God's Word is more important than physical food. God's Word is more important than life. And Jesus is saying, doing God's will is more important than physical food. He's saying, that is my food. That is the fuel for my soul to do God's work. And this laser focus on God's will and doing God's will is not just a one-time thing for Jesus. It's not temporary. At this point in my life, I'm going to do God's will. No, from the time that he was young. Remember when he was a boy and his parents had lost him. And when they finally found him, he said, don't you know that I must be about my father's will or his business? And at the end of his life, Jesus prayed to the Father in chapter 17, verse 4, and he says, I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work or the will that you gave me to do. Jesus' primary mission is to do the work of God. And the disciples needed to understand that they ought to have been a part, that they ought to be a part, and that we ought to be a part of the same kind of mission, doing the work of God. And that work of God is expressed here in in bringing in this harvest because God's harvest is abundant and ready verses 35 to 38 God's harvest is abundant and ready so we've had other metaphors before we had the water Jesus used to describe living water then the food Jesus used to describe his the will doing the will of God now he's going to use the the metaphor of farming or harvesting to describe bringing in lost souls he says to them in these verses, listen, people are always talking about when the harvest will come. Four months and then comes the harvest. There's so much anticipation. Finally, the harvest will come. We'll be able to bring it in and sell it or, or eat it and use it for ourselves. And what Jesus is saying is, we don't have to wait for the harvest. The harvest is here. And what he's talking about is not fit a physical harvest. You don't go out to a field, he's saying, and, and bring it in. He's saying... But there is a spiritual harvest of souls that's ready. The fields are white. Look out in the fields. It's time to bring in the harvest. And normally with farming, you have to sow the seed first. And then you have to do some work. And you have to do some waiting. And then the harvest comes. But, but, but Jesus is saying, there's nothing more to wait for. The sowing has already been t- done. It's already been watered. We've already waited. Now that I'm here, it's time to reap the harvest that has been sown. Look at verse 36. Here we see the nature of the spiritual reaping, spiritual harvesting. It reads, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So those who are involved in the the reaping process, 
the, the harvesting process. They're gathering souls for life eternal, for eternity. And so what Jesus seems to be talking about to the disciples, I think has application for us, and that there are souls that are ready to be brought in. But I think his, his immediate, in the immediate context, he's talking about the harvesting of, of Samaritan souls. And right now, as we speak, the harvest is coming in. And it was actually coming in, apparently, through the Samaritan woman who's out there now telling them about this Jesus. Could this be the Christ? He told me everything. And that's the nature of spiritual reaping, that, that there's so much going on without our, our knowledge. You know, as a farmer, you're, they, they, are, they are involved, they're intimate, intimately involved in their own work. They know when it needs to be seeded, sown and seeded and planted and so on. But here, Jesus is saying, you don't even know what's going on. I've already set all that up. Now all you have to do is go out and get them. Bring in the harvest. And in the end, the end of verse 36 tells us both the sowers and the reapers will rejoice together. Now we need to follow the argument here because what Jesus is not saying is you need to sow. Uh, Paul uses that sowing and reaping analogy in a different way than what Jesus is using here. Okay, so there's, there's definitely some principles that we can learn from Paul and how we need to do some work to, to plant the seed, so to speak, of the gospel in someone and then uh, ask God to, to bring the fruit. But what Jesus, Jesus is saying is that the disciples don't need to sow because the sowing has already been done. The harvest is already here. We'll see, look at verses 37 and 38. We'll see who these sowers are. Verse 37, For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. So we already know who the another is. That's the disciples. You, the harvest is ready. Go and, and bring in the harvest. So who are the sowers? Verse 38, I sent you to reap, see we see them as the harvesters, that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So someone else other than you disciples, have done the laboring of the sowing and they didn't get to enjoy the fruit of their labor. In other words, they died without seeing the fruit of their labor. It seems to me that the others described in verse 38 are the believers and prophets in the Old Testament who tilled the spiritual ground and sowed spiritual seeds and who have watered and now have gone on into glory. And in the meantime, God has caused the growth and now it's time for the disciples to enter into, to take over the labor of what has already been done. My father-in-law loves to go to farm farmland auctions. He likes to see what the latest prices per acre are on farmland near him. Occasionally he'll purchase some land of his own. Imagine my father-in-law bought some land or inherited some land, took possession of it right before corn was ready to be harvested. In that way, he would enter into the labor that others had already done. And he would be able to enjoy the fruit of someone who's already done the hard work of removing the stones and setting up the tile so it drains properly and removing the weeds and fertilizing and, and, and giving it proper nutrients and, and, and sowing it. And, and all the waiting, he comes 
to take possession of this land, let's say by inheritance. And then he enjoys the labor, the blessings of the harvest. Jesus is saying, this is what the disciples are like. And I would say to you that we live in a time that the disciples lived in. That is the time when the spiritual field is white for harvest and we don't have to do anything except for enjoy the blessings of people who have gone before us. To change metaphors, we stand on the shoulders of Old Testament believers who laid the foundation of the Gospel to be given. And now Jesus Christ has come. And, and so that, that fruit, that crop, is ready to be brought in. It's time to go gather it. So, God's harvest includes outsiders. Secondly, God's harvest is at the center of His program. And then, number three, God's harvest is possible only through Christ. Verses 39 through 42. God's harvest is possible only through Christ. The woman takes the message to her town, and initially they believe. Um, Verse 40, So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking Him to stay, and He stayed. And many more believed because of His Word. So initially, their initial belief when she told them about Jesus may have been real or not, could have been superficial, maybe it wasn't complete. But the real harvest is when they hear, hear Jesus for themselves. And this reminds me of, of how many people come to Christ. You know, sometimes we just can't put into uh, words all that we understand about the Gospel. And so we say, come and, and hear for yourself. Or like we're doing with Christianity Explored, come and see for yourself. Look at the text of Scripture for yourself. Hear Jesus speak for yourself. Not audibly, but in His words that are left behind for us. And that's what the Samaritan woman does. She doesn't understand everything there is to understand about the Gospel, but she knows who got her there. She knows this Messiah. And so when they hear from her, we understood and believed when we heard from her, but now we really understand. Look at verse 42. It's no longer because of what you said, talking to the Samaritan woman, that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of the Jews only. Not the Savior of the Samaritans only. But the Savior of the world. So, yes, it's true that the harvest is possible because of the Old Testament prophets and saints who have gone before us, who've laid the foundation, who's, who've sown the seed. But ultimately, this harvest is only possible because Jesus died for sinners. Only Jesus has power to save. And this message of hope is that Jesus came to save sinners. God's harvest includes outsiders. God's harvest is at the center of God's program. And God's harvest is only possible through Christ. One application that I'll um, draw out three implications from. And it, it is this. The harvest is here. Let's get to work. If it's true what Jesus said, that the harvest is ready, the fields are white for harvest, then what obstacles are in our way from bringing in the harvest ourselves? What obstacles are there? Implication number one. You can't bring in the harvest if you're not a Christian. 
So my first exhortation is to non-Christians. Doing the work of God, all this food that Jesus was talking about, doing God's will is impossible until you first acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The Bible says that apart from God's work of redemption, all of our most righteous acts are like dirty menstrual claws in the eyes of God. Isaiah 64, 6. No amount of good works can bring you to God because your best good work is valueless in the eyes of God. So you deserve, I deserve God's wrath. And Jesus Jesus died for people like us. He died for sinners. And if you see yourself as a sinner, as someone who has defied God's law, as someone who is deserving of His just condemnation, and if you're willing to turn from your sins, then you can be saved by Jesus. Whoever believes in Him will be saved. Jesus' atonement is effective for you if you believe. So, I say to you, non-Christian, call on the name of the Lord today. Come and find refuge in the shadow of His wings because He will give you an easy yoke and a light burden compared to what you're bearing right now. You're bearing the wrath of God. You are by nature a children, a, a child of wrath. Jesus will re- release you from that heavy burden, put on you a lighter burden, an easy yoke, one that you take pleasure in. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Second implication. You can't bring in the harvest if you are distracted. You can't bring in the harvest if you're distracted. So to extend the harvest metaphor that Jesus is using, it would be like a hired hand who's too busy checking his status on Facebook or, or playing games on his phone. He doesn't have any energy. He's got his feet up. He's relaxed. He doesn't give any energy to bringing in the harvest because he's too enamored by the things that are passing away, things that don't matter five years from now or ten years from now or or ten years from now or certainly not for eternity. I'm not against smartphones and social media and games and all that, but I'm just saying that if that is what fills up our week so that we don't have time to do the work of God, can I say that our priorities are out of whack? We can't bring in the harvest if we're distracted. Here's the great message that we have this morning, Christian. We don't have to wait for the harvest to come in. It's here. The fields are white. And so we need to get up and work. And so we need to remove the distractions that are keeping us from working for God. We need to lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily slow us down and run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We need to set aside those distractions so that we, like a, a runner, ready to run a, a race, we, get, we, we remove the weights that we were using in training. We get rid of the distraction so it's, we can go out and, and be involved in bringing in the harvest, doing the work of God. That ought to be our food. That ought to be our fuel in life. My fuel, my food, is to do the work of Him who sent me. Third implication. 
You can't bring in the harvest if you think it's someone else's job. Have you ever worked with people who, who never want to lift a finger because it's not their job? Nope, not going to do that. Not in my job description. Not in my do- job description. And sadly, I think there are Christians like that as well. Nope, not going to reach the lost, lost people with the gospel. Not my job. I didn't sign up for that. Leave that to someone who's more equipped, more able, who's better um, able to answer questions and and do so without um, without fear. I didn't sign up for that. Can I say to you that you did? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words on earth, then I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. If you are ashamed, if you are, are, are too good to go out and bring in any harvest, then why would Jesus ever stand up for your sake when you stand before the throne of God? We did sign up for this. When, when we became a follower of Christ, we, followed, we follow Him in the things that He does. And one of the things that He does is He brings in lost souls. Now, we can't force that to happen. So I'm not saying, you know, make, let's get a list of everybody that you've brought to, to saving faith. But our job is, is not necessarily to bring them to Christ. It is to at least share the Gospel with them. God will be, be the one who has to actually change their heart, right? We saw that in John 3. But if we're not telling them, how will they ever come to Christ? Isn't that what Romans 10 says? How can they call on Him in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone proclaims the truth to them? How can someone proclaim the truth to them unless they be sent? What I'm saying to you is that in one sense, you are sent by your Savior who saved you. Take the Gospel to the people around you. That doesn't mean you have to go to the other side of the world Although that may mean that. But it does mean that the the circles of influence that you have right now, you ought to be thinking of strategic ways in which you can share the gospel. I ought to be thinking of strategic ways in which I can share the gospel because you know people that I don't know and I know people you don't know that need the gospel. And you and I may be the only link between them and the truth about Jesus Christ that they will ever have. We don't know. And our job is to go out into the fields with the help of God, prayerfully, dependently seeking His face, and giving them the gospel. You can't bring in the harvest if you think it's someone else's job. Jesus said in Luke 10, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out laborers into the harvest. There are souls that you already know that need to hear this message. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus saves the self-righteous. Jesus saves the outcast. Jesus is the Savior of the world. They need to hear that from you. What are you going to do about it? The harvest is here. Let's get to work. Would you pray with me? Father, how easy it is to pass the buck to someone else who can take, take on this task. How easy it is to fill up our lives with all kinds of distractions. 
weigh ourselves down with many encumbrances that may or may not be sinful. Often they're not sinful. They're, and we engage in good things, but to the exclusion of the best things. And one of the best things is to bring in the harvest. It's a part of doing your work. And Lord, if we know you, and we know your word, and we know your desires, then we will want to see you honored through the gathering in of lost souls. And so, Lord, whatever capacity of life, whatever place, station in life that you've placed us, help us to be faithful. There are parents here who have unbelieving child, uh, children who need to have the gospel on display in their homes. There are people here who have siblings who up until this point have not turned in saving faith, but maybe you draw them with another plea for salvation. There are co-workers of believers in this room who maybe have never heard the gospel. Certainly there are neighbors who need to hear that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Lord, would you, would you point us to specific people within our circle, circles of influence, not pass the blame or the buck onto someone else, not to be distracted, not to have too much time or not enough time to be able to do anything, but, but to free ourselves up so that we can share this great message that has come to us by people who were, were willing to sacrifice some of the pleasures of this world so that the gospel to come to us. Thankful for my parents who brought the gospel to me and my pastor and my family members who displayed the gospel for me. And I pray that I would be that kind of, of a harvester and, and a representative of my Savior. And I pray that same for each person in here today. There are some, however, who don't know Christ and who haven't called on the name of the Lord, who have not believed. Would you bring them to repentance and faith today? Help them to know the joy of the light burden, the easy yoke that Jesus offers in comparison to the, to the great burden of your eternal wrath. We pray that you would be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.